1: i Zohar. I am a rabbi, a poet, a scholar, a traveling teacher, and uh, perhaps most of all a seeker, a seeker of meaning. I think of meaning as simultaneously something that we have to make and something that we have to discover. And it's a bit of a paradox in that regard, because if meaning is just of your own making, it's sort of Crumbles under the uh, the weight and pressure of the ego. But if it's just this thing outside of you for which you take no responsibility and bring no individuality and personality to, then it's a kind of abstraction uh, that leaves that leaves you bereft. That leaves you feeling interchangeable with the next person. So I think for me, meaning has something to do with this entanglement of the singular and the universal, the fact that nobody else can be me, can live my life, can live this moment. But at the same time, meaning has to be more than self-indulgence in order for it to really have a weight. I think about meaning also through the lens of my scholarly interests. Uh, I wrote a dissertation on Heidegger, uh, who was captivated by in a sense the banality of meaning the fact that meaning is all around us all the time it doesn't have to be this sort of um spiritual it doesn't have to be this intense thing when I reach for the doorknob and open the door I don't think this is a doorknob and therefore I will open the door I just reach intuitively for the doorknob and yet implicit in that gesture is so much meaning already. My being in the world is implicated in that gesture, my relationship to that door, to every door I've ever opened, to what I think is on the other side of the door, and so on and so forth. So meaning is sort of an everyday occurrence and uh, hopefully an exceptional occurrence all at once. I think
0: Gerard Manley Hopkins also had this intuition that the world is full of meaning everywhere you go. It's shining everywhere. But why is it then that so many people feel like their life is meaningless, that they struggle with this feeling of existential emptiness? Is there something about modern society that cuts us off from feeling that fullness that seems latent in the world that we live in and yet also
1: feels inaccessible? My sort of instinctual answer is something to the effect of, you know, when when life was simpler and people lived in a tribe and there was less change and less disruption and people knew their place and their worldview was not in crisis all the time and there was more homogeneity, they didn't have to make meaning. Meaning was just given to them. There was also less emphasis on individualism in those times and ages, and there was a lot more repression and oppression, but maybe it wasn't experienced as such insofar as people just accepted it as their lot. I think the blessing and the challenge of modern time is that we place so much emphasis on the individual, the individual dignity, the individual right, but there's also a lot of pressure then on the individual to assert something and um, that creates an identity crisis. In a sense, you can't have identity without identity crisis. And um, so I think that's sort of one, one piece of the puzzle. Another, of course, is what uh, Hegel describes as a struggle for recognition. Um, he thinks that sort of the ability to engage in some kind of struggle provides a sense of meaning. And the truth is that in the West, where life is relatively prosperous, um, certainly in relationship to our ancestors, that utilitarian ease that we have, being able to to, to get everything at our doorstep and in the click in, a, in the click of an instant, uh, is also accompanied by a lack of adversity uh, for many. A, la- a lack of sort of adversity in the way that. Our ancestors might have experienced it when they went to battle to defend <laughs> their village. Uh, now, you know, adversity comes in the form of having to pass standardized tests to get into the right schools and all that. But I think despite what our, and I don't mean to cheapen it, of course, there, there still is adversity. But for many, the adversity feels far less weighty than than it did. And, and I think, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be nostalgic for a time when everything was painful but utilitarianism has really maxed us out on happiness, and that hasn't necessarily come with commensurate meaningfulness. They might actually be in to some degree. So
0: you're a rabbi. People come to you for help and answers. And so if a 25-year-old... Struggling to know why he's grinding away at a job, says, Rabbi Zohar, I just don't see the point of any of this. I'm just working to make money to buy shit until I die. How How would you do some pastoral guidance for someone struggling with that sense that the efforts I do in the world ultimately
1: make no difference
0: to anyone?
1: I would probably just ask why you're doing it and, you know, what in your story has led you to this, to this pattern of behavior and try to understand why now it's a breaking point such that they're coming to me and looking to make a change. Why didn't they try to make that change five years or five years earlier? Uh, I hypothesize, of course, it it might have something to do with the expectations that were placed upon them when you know, before they were a mature adult, which are sort of very hard to unlearn. Um, so that would be the work, right, is, is helping a person individuate and just discover for themselves what, what motivates them. And um, it might mean leaving the job. But it also might be the case, and you hear this from people who say some some version of this as well, that they're unhappy in any job they take. Uh, and so the solution isn't, you know, go quit your job and and become an entrepreneur or work for a different company, but you know wherever you are, there you are, like kind of work through your uh, your blocks and reframe what it is that you're doing in life. Maybe you stay at the job, but you now have a different understanding of why you're there. I don't think the the answer is always exit, though though it can be.
0: How do you think about this idea, which you alluded to, that meaning is both made, but it's also discovered? And the discovery part suggests that there's a kind of real reservoir of meaningful things or activities or projects out
1: in the world. I don't have a a perfect formula in a sense. I think there's, I'll betray my skepticism here and say that I think the project of making meaning or discovering meaning or both is sort of a constant one. It's open-ended. You never arrive at an answer. And if you do, you kind of risk complacency or becoming a caricature of yourself. My answer would be triangulation. The practical answer is sort of, there's a voice inside of you that that you know to be true, this is uh, something we get from Luther and Rousseau and the Protestant Reformation, and I'm not here to to call that into question i I'm uh, in favor in some sense of conscience as of as an authority, but it should be triangulated with uh, trusted feedback from people that you admire, people that you respect, um, as well as people that maybe disagree with you or have a different worldview, um, you should probably weight it differently. But I don't think you should just be in a bubble where all the feedback you're getting confirms yourself, because that ends up being just narcissism at the collective level. And then I th- I do think, you know, as, as, a, as somebody who is connected to tradition, this is one of the pr- sort of instrumental reasons why I think tradition is helpful. But Looking to examples from the past and stories from the past is another powerful way to triangulate as you see your story fitting a pattern of a larger tapestry of stories and not just, you know, not just unique to you. So I think the individual still gets the vote and the veto, but to the extent possible, allowing other influences into your life can really enrich your sense of agency and your sense of finding that fit <laughs> between conscience and world. So I would say uh, aspire to be the to be the kind of strong person who can be influenced by a great diversity of voices, perspectives and modes and diversify the existential portfolio not just in terms of <laughs> people in the present but also in terms of uh, the kind of information that you take from the past. How do you uh, encourage people to think about
0: responsibilities and commitments um, in a way that doesn't feel like burdens, but can in fact either make you feel more joy or maybe even reframe it away from you know, the cost-benefit analysis of how it will make you feel? It's just the right thing to do
1: <laughs> some of it is just sharing my own story with people and saying look you know I I lived the same life that you're living uh, you know where, where the world was my oyster and I feel much better now <laughs> it is a kind of utilitarian so and I feel much better now now that my options are much more limited but I've, I'm far more committed so some of it is just like I kind of look and seem like your average postmodern American Ivy League educated jet setting like McKinsey type. But somehow like I chose to be a rabbi. I'm, I'm married. I have two kids. Um, I don't think anything that I'm doing is particularly radical, but maybe relative to my peer group, <laughs> it seems a little bit Strange. And so there's like, uh, well, how does that add up? You know, what, how did he do that? And I, I guess I just being able to say, you know, uh, I, I have a f- a friends who tell me that they're not sure if they want to have children or, you know, they don't want the responsibility. And I just try to encourage them without being universalistic or, or moralizing I could just say something like, in my experience, you know, my heart expanded so much when I became a father, and I know that that would happen for you as well from my point of view. So you're taking a sort of static view of the self where you think that you're not ready for X and you have to do, you know, all these things to prepare. And I'm sure that's, you know, I'm sure that's true. But there's another side to the story, which is just you are thrown into a situation, thrown as Heidegger describes it, And that situation gives you the strength. It gives you the insight. It it helps you rise to the occasion. I have less free time now than I did when I was, you know, in graduate school. And yet many days, many weeks passed in graduate school. I had no responsibilities at Oxford um, in which I probably squandered them. I didn't know the gift of time because I didn't have constraints. Now, with my constraints, I feel the holiness of an hour. Do you think meaning feels
0: like growth? Because you mentioned that your heart expanded, and I, I have felt that too with the relationships that I've cultivated. And I think when I have felt... The best in life. It's when I feel myself growing in capacities that I want to grow in, whether that's love or sensitivity or strength. So, is it as a meaningful life just one that is constantly growing
1: towards holiness and goodness? I do think growth is a great indicator. Um, I don't know if it's a leading or lagging indicator of meaning, but. Arendt describes sort of the task of the task of the the critical thinker as um thinking without banisters. And I associate that with growth, with sort of going to the edge where no one has has thought before and doing something where you feel like you might fall off the stairs. And uh the most meaningful times in my life have been times where there was no playbook where I didn't have an example to reach for and say well, this person did it, so now I should just follow that. But it was sort of hyper individuating, and that's where I felt growth. Where it was, where I had to trust, trust the process, trust in something. I'll say trust in God. And um, I think that's that's how you know you're growing when you when you feel totally uncertain uh, without banisters. So yeah, I mean, I don't think you should live. Always in such an intense place. I think it's good to have routine, stability, structure, habit. In a way, um, not you know Esther Perel, she's a sort of pop psychologist. I think her her language uh, in describing romantic dating sort of maps on a little bit here to the spiritual quest, where you want enough novelty to keep the relationship exciting. But not so much novelty that you're like, "Is this for real <laughs> and uh I think that's you know the the sweet spot with growth is that you you feel supported enough that you can take some risk for me the the meaningful life is more based in intuition than it is in a mental model, like if someone interviewed me, <laughs> it is sort of job context instead of said, you know, what's your purpose in life, I, I might be able to rattle off some impressive sounding thing and even maybe persuade myself that it's true. Um, I might, you know, I could put it down on a website as a mission statement and, and, and memorize it and, and so on. But I don't really think that's going to capture the, the more important aspect of meeting, which is just this heartfelt sense, day after day, that you're waking up for a reason. And it's not a reason you can really put into words. It's just it's it is a sweetness. It's um it's it's more like the air around you. I do think it's available to people. Um, How would I sort of describe it more deeply? This sort of intuitive sense that that you matter. Again, I think it has some sense a vocation to it some sense that you have you can do something that no one else can do and i believe everybody has that because we are creative beings even if your your day job doesn't necessarily reflect that there's definitely some aspect of your day or some aspect of your life where you do have agency and creativity and practicing that will allow you to become more intimate with what it is so i encourage that practice is an end of itself at the same time, there's this idea from Heidegger and from mysticism. Sometimes it's in German it's called Gelassenheit, which, which gets translated as releasement. Uh, the Eastern tradition calls it wei-wu-wei, uh, effortless effort. There's another aspect of this meaningfulness thing that's sort of about giving yourself over and not trying to control it. So it's not like I'm setting the agenda and the agenda is what meaning am I going to do? But more of this sort of trust and letting go in a sense that there just is meaning no matter what I'm doing. And I don't have to have figured it out today or tomorrow. I can just sort of be in this process with integrity, doing my best effort. And uh, if it didn't go well today or tomorrow... That's also okay. That's also part of it. Um, how much is this just luck that I feel this way? How much is it that I, I have a certain worldview? I, how much is genetics? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's It's not shared by all people that I know, and it's particularly not shared by people who are fancy themselves very clever and have optimized for being really smart and really rational. It seems more common, in my experience, amongst people who are sort of less schooled in the enlightenment tools of the trade, um, less analytical. So, how do you get that, and how do you get that without giving up the skepticism or the rationality, and and falling prey to the other side of it, which is sort of you know gullibility or conspiratorial thinking or what have you? There's so much misinformation. Uh, that's really in a sense capitalizing on the fact that people want to feel and don't want to think because thinking is a is a curse so yeah, my plea is mostly to the my my fellow schooled folks to get them to feel more to get to to not give all of the executive branch power to the mind. But I definitely understand where they're coming from because when you take a long view of humanity and you see what's happened when we've given the executive power to intuition or the heart, it hasn't exactly been pretty. So that that circles back to the liberalism issue. And um, so I think in my case, um, The Meaningful Life is some kind of toggling back and forth between head and heart, Um on a meta level, I think that's kind of why, what my purpose is, is, is to find some kind of – broker some kind of peace between them or create some kind of synthesis. And I, and I, haven't, I haven't figured it out, but that challenge is, is – uh, it's a worthy challenge. And I guess that, that would be another offer I would give is find a worthy challenge. Like it can't be so easy because then you're not growing you're not doing something that only you can do so it it has to be hard but if your life is hard it's not always easy to be grateful so you kind of have to find that endeavor that simultaneously is difficult and one that you can say thank you for this difficulty
0: Making Meaning is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. It is produced by me, Zachary Davis, and Jack Pombriand. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org.